I train literally 365 days of the year. Yeah. And if you look at that as commitment to high level performance, and then you strip that back and look at football, and you think of, you know, it's a very different way of working. So the player's like, what, you have half a day off a week? He went, yes. I said, well, when do you have a full day off? And he says, I take a full day off once every six months. Wow. There's a foot of snow by now. We're losing all credibility. We're, we're losing all everyone. credibility. And we're both looking going, ah, oh, lads, just going. Yeah. And we've given up, haven't we? And, and, and I suppose that's a, a nod to our professional state of mind that we're still trying. <laughs> But he brought in Sir Steve Redgrave. So essentially, this well, was, not just any athlete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> just in, an athlete. In came Sir Steve with his um, with his wooden box to hand round for everyone could pick out all the medals that he had, including the bronze. Welcome, football fans, to Breaking Lines, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the beautiful game like never before. I'm Gary Rowett, former player and manager, joined by the insightful Dave Carolan, a man with his finger on the pulse of football's beating heart. Together, Dave and I bring you unrivaled insight, context, and a few stories from the trenches. Join us as we dissect the game, break down the plays, and explore the intricate dance between managers, players, fans, and the beautiful game itself. This is Breaking Lines, where the game is more than just a match. Right, so here we are. It's a cold morning in January, and uh, we're recording a podcast with hats and gloves on because the weather has taken a decided downturn in temperature. Ice on the uh, grass. It's one of the real challenges of working in British football, isn't it? The weather, it varies so much across the season. We go from baking hot summers to absolutely freezing winters to being covered in rain to rock hard pitches as the spring comes back. And it's the greatest topic of British conversation, isn't it? Also, you know, when you, we should have added that to what the managers say to each other after games. Oh, <laughs> what, 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 where, where are you training at the moment? Because the weather's not very good. So, yeah, I mean, look, what would we be doing normally at this time of year? Would be, would be, you'd be dro- I mean, if obviously it's a bit, little bit earlier, you'd be driving into training thinking, I wonder whether the pitches are frozen. I wonder whether the um, undersoil heating's on at the main ground. I wonder if there's a 4G nearby that we could potentially use if all else fails. How does the week look at the moment for us? And, you know, could we go in the gym for a day and do something different if it's maybe a Monday and you're Saturday to Saturday with games? There are so many factors at this point, isn't there? And, And I suppose most people looking at a top professional club would think this isn't a challenge, but actually it's a huge challenge, isn't it? You know, we've been in before where a groundsman rang at seven o'clock and said, oh, it's a little bit frozen, but it should be fine, you know, at, at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock. And you get to nine o'clock and you go outside and you're going, at what point did he think this was going to be fine? And it's <laughs> he didn't rock- say what day, <laughs> nine o'clock or 10 And o'clock. it's rock solid. Yeah. It's absolutely rock solid. Or... Your orbs are little bits that are rock solid, which to most people would appear that that's okay. But obviously, you've got a, a player that's worth 
Let's really use our imagination. <laughs> Let's say we had a player that was worth... One million pounds. Tw <laughs> 20 million pounds. Oh, right, 20 million pounds. Anyway, whatever the player's worth, you know, you don't want a player slipping, jarring their back or hurting their knee or getting injured, a serious injury, just basically down to the fact that there's a rock-solid line at the side of your pitch that, you know, won't fall. So there's loads of challenges, and I've... And I've you know, I, I've done so many, I think back to some of the sessions I've had to do at the last minute or had to adjust at the last minute. It's been incredible. I mean, let's think back to the mate, probably the one that sticks in my mind at one club. We started training, didn't we? There was forecast snow, but you started training. It was beautiful surface, soft. Green grass. Green grass, lush. lush. Let's set the scene, Dave. Sun was out. <laughs> It was beautiful. It was yeah. beautiful. We'd won the last game. <laughs> I didn't feel under pressure. <laughs> this is complete fantasy. Complete why we've taken the fantasy just thinking too far. of the most amazing yeah. week of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So I hadn't been given stick by my missus before I'd left for training. There's so many things that have been so good in it. Um, yeah. And literally start training and within five minutes start snowing. So you're training. Okay. We've set it up. Little little session starts snowing. That's all right. Be fine. Lads are looking up, thinking, "What is this?" A bit the odd flake. The odd right, flake. Yeah. And then within ten minutes, the whole pitch is covered in snow. The lads are like skating around on it. You've got a white ball, very poorly prepared by the kit man. You know, and you're asking, and you're scrambling around. Go, well, have we got any yellow balls? Have we got any orange balls? Whatever. I better quantify that's footballs. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> good job I didn't say blue balls. So, you know, you can go from perfect training conditions to, oh, my God, what are we going to do next? I think that session, we end up having to cancel the session. And if I'm right in saying, I'm going to say it was your idea, you're going to say it was my idea. Definitely your idea. This and, one. and I said, Dave, <laughs> take the players and let's just do a few strides. So, so physically, we can at yeah. least we need to do hit some, you know, let's say, let's say we've done 4K at that time. Can we at least do 6K? So just take them on a few strides, bump it up so at least we can go into tomorrow knowing we've done half a session, but it feels like a, a, a at least physically like something. Yeah. And it's carrying on snowing and the players are thinking, what are we doing? And about three strides in, we're both looking at each other. It is a blizzard out there. There's a foot of snow by now. We're losing all credibility. We're, we're losing all everyone. credibility. And we're both looking going, oh, lads, just going. Yeah. And we've given up, haven't we? And, and, and I suppose that's a, a nod to our professional state of mind that we're still trying <laughs> at that point. Not this, at our age. This could be in point. a game, we yeah. keep saying to them. Yeah. You yeah, know, what could, would you yeah. do if it was a game? Yeah. We, we keep going. Yeah, last 80th minute. This is where we get the gains. It's yeah, not. All, all it's those, Tuesday. It's yeah. 11 o'clock in the morning. Let's and, go in. We're and free. the players are thinking, can't yeah. we just go in and, and stay warm? Yeah. So those are the live challenges that you face, don't you? And, and actually... Having a plan, having a backup plan, you know, having a facility at a training ground with undersaw heat. And of course, not every, like most training grounds haven't got the facility no. at the training ground. Maybe most grounds would have the underfloor, undersaw heating on. So again, some of those days you'd have to preempt, wouldn't you? And think, okay, do we, do we train at the ground? You know, let's say we're not sure. And that's where you need a good groundsman to say, right, I don't think it's going to be, you're going to be able to train on a pitch today. Um, why don't you train at the ground? And of course, then you start to think, well, 
the ground's often a different surface to the training ground. Yep. The players might have to travel another half an hour to the ground. There's all sorts of logistical challenges with that. Kitmen. Kitmen. Medical get, staff. Oh, God. Squads. Yeah, I mean, when you say you're training at the ground last minute, the, the, you can almost hear, palpably hear the groans catering. from the staff, the catering. Everything yeah. has to move there, doesn't it? And it's not easy. Yeah. But at that point, as a manager, all you want to do is you want the week to look as similar as it normally looks, don't you? You want that continuity of the week so that, you know, you don't have a week that there's an important game at the end of it. And you've had two or three days where you've had to train at the ground one day, the training ground on 40 metres by 40 metres another day for half an hour, a 4G another day, you know, so of course... or whatever, yeah. They're the things that you're trying to avoid, aren't they? And that's just the, that's just the cold weather, you know, of course, which you can hit, you know, any time in, in, in this country. Yeah, I mean, you we're probably into a period now of probably two to three months where the variability in the weather from it being we've just come out of a really really wet period into a really really cold period so pitches are deteriorating at training grounds because while it's wet they just fall apart then they get really really cold and they're quite dangerous at times aren't they you know because players wearing they don't don't all wear studs anymore do they you know it's it's moles or or at best a hybrid boot they give them no real grip when they're on those type of pitches, do they? No, and also you might have players with, you know, let's say you've got a player coming back that's got an irritable knee because they've had knee issues in the past and they're now training on a slightly harder surface. There's going to be players that don't feel comfortable doing that or, or, or it's going to exacerbate any problem they have. So there's all sorts of decisions around it, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah, look, the, the, the rain's just as much of an issue. We've, we've been at places where the training grounds have been poor drainage. So suddenly it's hammered it down for three or four weeks and you can get away with it, get away with it. Uh, and then all of a sudden you get an absolute downpour of rain. And before you know it, the balls, you know, you see it on, pit, on matches, don't you? Where the balls and everyone's thinking, this is going to get called off. And it's no different every day in training. You know? yeah, yeah. We've had days where you've almost essentially had to call training off. I think that's one of the biggest challenges in it. And we, we've had it before where we'll both be looking at each other from across the training pitch and we're both thinking how long do we carry on like you said yeah. like how long how long is this credible to train do we give up on it early or do we just get on with it you know do we just crack on and do the best we can and, and whatever because often players don't players are not sat there are they going oh we need to stop training most players just get on with it don't they and, yeah you know they'll, they'll yeah, sort they might be thinking a few, it. few minutes and then yeah. they go right okay it is what it is the conditions are what they are let's just get on with it but you you know you might have a possession where you suddenly see players skating around yeah. and the ball stopping and it just becomes a real lack of quality which is obviously why at that point you go okay well we can't play any football so let's physically get something out of a session yeah you know so the day at least looks similar so so yeah, there's oh, also- I've ruined many a side of a pitch with a, a random set of doggies that were chucked in because we needed to get something done. And, you know, you can sacrifice the off-pitch areas and, and do some kind of conditioning work, can't you? Or some young sports scientist has ruined the pitch by doing <laughs> the doggies on the pitch. On the pitch thinking, this is yeah. a nice surface, why don't they use this? Yeah. But no, look, yeah, look, they're, they're the sort of challenges that go into planning the training, aren't they? I mean, you, we've had it before where you go out onto the pitch and you can find maybe uh, you, you've got 20 professional players, but it could be a Friday before a 
again, I know the importance of the game doesn't necessarily mean that you still don't want training to be right, but you know, some days you can get away with it a little bit. So it might be a Friday where maybe we're doing a little bit of team shape, some set pieces, some small sided games, whatever it might look like, but you might only have 40 meters by 40 meters yeah. of decent area. You know, you, you look at it, it's quite ridiculous, isn't it? But it's just the way it is. You might have four pitches at your training ground and loads of areas off the pitch. But yet, bizarrely, sometimes there's only a little area that actually becomes playable. And you know that area is never going to get used again for the next four weeks because it's going to be absolutely destroyed. And you're trying to just get whatever you need to get out of it. And often you'll start training and it's a lot worse than you, you know, like let's say you yeah. use a pitch you don't use normally and the players are sliding about or then you start thinking, oh my God, someone's going to do their groin here or <clears throat> someone's going to pull their hamstring or someone's going to get injured. And But you have to do the work because you've got a game the next day. It's, you know, I remember speaking to, like I remember when I was, when I was um, in League Two, I remember speaking to other, like it's often you get another manager come up and of course at that level, the facilities are not, as good at a lot of clubs. You know, some clubs will train at school playing grounds. Do you know what I mean? Or some clubs wouldn't have their own training ground at those levels. At Colchester, we trained in the army barracks. Yeah, but, yeah. but, but that's a genuine scenario, isn't it? But, but you have to put up with. I mean, at Burton, we were very, your pitches. Yeah, Burton, we're very fortunate because we trained at St. George's, so you'd always train. So we would train every day regardless. And honestly, sometimes you could go inside in the big, almost full-size indoor area or you could go on an undersole heated pitch, you know, or if you had to train later, you could go on one with floodlights. So it was an absolute incredible facility to be able to be used by a League Two club. But often teams would come up, and I remember teams like, say, I don't know, say Exeter had come up, and the manager would say, we haven't trained on a, we haven't trained on a grass pitch for two months. And you're like, what? Yeah. You know, or another team would come up and go, we haven't been out of train for like two weeks. And you think, these are the challenges, you know, and it, sometimes it doesn't necessarily affect your results too much for a period, but, but these are the challenges that certainly at lower league levels and, and beyond, aren't they? But actually getting a surface to be able to maintain continuity in your training program. Yeah, I remember at Colchester, we, we didn't have the training ground available, hadn't been built. So we were kind of training in various places, including the aforementioned army garrison, but even <laughs> at times it became unplayable you know despite some days having to train while people were practicing mortar fire <laughs> across the pitches <laughs> or doing real life um, quite good quite realistic practice for a league two games yeah, yeah yeah at times but anyway i always remember at one stage during the transfer window we pulled off under ad boothroyd the unbelievable coup of nobby solano joining us and then we couldn't train on the grass pitches, so we had to go and play indoor football oh, God. on on an old school like sports centre. But it was the army, so it was yeah. like a fantastic facility. But it was still indoor football with the old like giant tennis balls and watching Nobby Solano twist up most of the team <laughs> by dribbling past all of them. I just wish he had played his trumpet as a salute at the end of it, you know. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're the challenges at League One, League Two level. You may not have undersoil heating at your ground. You may not have even covers for your pitches at the training ground or any form of undersoil heating. So the snow comes down, you'll end up doing maybe what, again, back at Colchester, what we ended up doing, which was a full-scale gym session, a circuit in the car park in the snow. Oh, God. 
I've seen some of those things. It's like, it's amazing how innovative, well, when I use the word innovative, that probably wouldn't be replicated by the players that were doing it at the time. <laughs> yeah, innovative. Nobody was thinking innovation. <laughs> in, in, innovation at lower leagues often consisted of, right, okay, well, we're going to have to meet, because you would get those periods where the training ground was unplayable, the ground was unplayable, you couldn't get into a, you know, a local, you know, like, I don't know, like a, a JJB or somewhere where, yeah. do you know what I mean? Where, you know, you, they, they had like 10 five-a-side pitches where you could just go and do something. You know what I mean? You couldn't go on there every day anyway, could you, because of the surface, the change of surface. But often you'd think, well, let's just go and get a bit of football. Or you might have known a school nearby that had a, that had a 4G or whatever that you could use. But often if you didn't have that, there'd be the odd day, wouldn't there, where you'd go, we're just going to have to stay at the ground or stay at the training ground. And we have to, or, or often back then you'd, train, you'd change at the ground, wouldn't you? I mean, certainly when I first started Cambridge, you'd change at the ground and you'd drive to the training ground and train and come back and get showered and everything. So, and obviously most places have changed a little bit since then, but back then that's what you did. So if you couldn't train anywhere, you couldn't get on the pitch, but you're, you're now at the ground. So of course, what are you going to do? What are you thinking? So, okay, how can we get a bit of a sweat on? There's no gym. So maybe, so running around the pitch is dangerous. So what should we do in its place? Let's look up at the main stand. Oh, Let's God. see all those steps. <laughs> Stadium Let's look steps. At all those steps. Stadium steps. So how many times would you see it where I'm sure there'd be some old footage of some of the top players that have ever played running up and down steps at their prospective or respective stadium. Yeah. Because it was you could do so many things, couldn't you? Like honestly, it was it was painful, oh, wasn't I, it? I did circuits and concourses on the stands. <laughs> you know, it didn't it didn't really matter, you know. I I think it, I I distinctly remember one game where we um we went to play Portsmouth at Fratton Park. Right. And Suspiciously, the game got called off because it was very waterlogged in one particular corner of the Ooh. ground. Anyway, going back to previously mentioned manager Bruce Rioc, um, he wasn't happy that some of the lads at the services had chosen some of the wrong foods. So because the game had been called off, he decided we're, we're going back to Carroll Road to the training uh, to, the, to the main pitch got it all turned on at whatever it was. It was about half six, seven o'clock in the evening and he just ran the players around the pitch. You know, because we hadn't played the game. He was a bit upset with them not eating correctly, but he, he wanted to do a conditioning session. So four hours back on the, uh, on the bus, running around the pitches. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a great day for sports science. I bet you one. enjoyed I bet you enjoyed telling the players what they were doing. It's a, I it's didn't that take the session. I did not take that session. <laughs> it's that coach journey back. I was a manager's back. session. Yeah. Coach <laughs> journey back. And you're thinking, I've got a feeling what's coming. Don't want to say anything to the lads. The lads are all fishing about. Well, what, 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 what are we doing, Dave? Any idea? Go and ask the manager what we're doing. Like, oh, no. No, no, no. I'm not asking anything. You'll wait and see. Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it? But, we're, but you know what? I've done, I've done, you've done sessions. Like, I, suppose, I suppose the aim for something like that is, like, if you had a small stadium, you'd be so thankful, wouldn't you? Because you could have been in the lower leagues at a club, an old club, but an old big club with the biggest stand, main stand you've ever seen. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh, my God, there's about 400 flights of stairs. Sheffield so, Wednesday, Chef, Yeah, so somewhere like that. You're, let's say you're a, 
I don't know, you're an apprentice or a young pro somewhere like that and you yeah. can't train and all of a sudden you know what's coming. You know, and actually a lot of them would have done that for fitness work back then, wouldn't they? Yeah. As, as part of the part of the week anyway. And then must I see some old footage recently and I think it was um slightly different, but I think it was like Maradona. And he was training and he's like run, he's like doing a cross country run as part of a training session, you know what I mean? So I told you that was still yeah, modern. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Running running still yeah, running of whatever degree hasn't changed, does it? You, you what was the session that Conti did on the pitch? A few years back, digressing slightly, but it did each line, didn't they, or whatever it was. Yeah, and but, but even that was in heat, you know. Ah, right, it, it was okay. doing as a form of almost conditioning, but it was in the heat, right? Um, and it was building tolerance, but yeah, it was it was a a very very hard tough, session. You know, as a player, like cold is one thing. Yeah, is, is it is that the worst conditions to play in? The cold, or is it rain, or is it wind? Like which? As a player, would you have gone, oh, you know, I can deal with cold or snow, but just don't give me rain or wind or whatever? Well, I think... Do players have a preference? I think, look, just before we go into that, so before, before I answer that question, I remember once at Burton, we were nine games. It, it, it was a year that we had about three months of really freezing conditions, and we were nine games behind everyone else in the league. Or I think it was us and Accrington, nine games behind. So. You know, it can at that, at that level, yeah. Oh, yeah, good one. Very good. At, that, at that level, it can at that level, it can have such an impact on yeah. your season because you know, if you haven't got those facilities and other teams have, and all of a sudden you are going to fall behind, and you've got to catching games that having games in hand's great, but you've got to go and win them, haven't you? So, uh, as a player, what would I what would I prefer? Uh, do you know what I hated? I hated the wind. I hated it when it was really, really windy. Especially if we had a goalkeeper who couldn't kick it. Because <laughs> in your head, you'd be thinking, oh my God, we're never getting out. We never got a wind against. Yeah. It's blowing back to the edge of the box and you just can't get out. I used to think that the wind, like rain, you could deal with. Cold, you could deal with. You know, even snow, you could deal with to a certain degree. But it was that wind, heat you could deal with. I, don't, I, never, I didn't like it too hot. Yeah, yeah. So I used to suffer, you know, I used to suffer in the heat. I would say wind is the one thing that ruins a game. It ruins the joy of the game because the quality diminishes incredibly. It ruins playing. Like, do you know what I mean? You could, I always used to blame all my bad passes on the weather. <laughs> <laughs> I was running out, out of weather conditions <laughs> at one point. Did you have your own personal fan in the corner? Look how windy uh, yeah, it is. Oh, God, <laughs> look how windy it is. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But, the, the modern stadium, though, like in, especially in the big leagues, it, yeah. it just negates the wind out, does it? The, the yeah. bowls, they, they don't suffer so much from the wind. No. But you go down one division into even the championship here in England, and certainly League One, League Two, the wind can be absolute disaster for you. Yeah, and this is not a, you know, quality we're not, at the Yeah, window. we're not sitting here bashing the lower leagues because we've been, we've worked yeah. there and we've <laughs> played there. So, you know, this, this is certainly not that. But, Often, like you say, the facilities there are slightly less salubrious at times and the stadiums are not as big. And a lot of, I mean, look, there's a lot of big clubs at those levels. But like you say, you're playing a championship now. Most grounds, you know, the wind would be essentially negated by the stadium. But you go and play at a ground where the stadium is not as big and the wind would wreak havoc in a game. Yeah. And, and, and genuinely, as a, t as a player, you know, you turn up at most games, don't you, and you think, you know, we've got a really good chance of winning this today, or if we can win this today and play well, then, you know, but actually the conditions 
get to a point where it becomes a lottery. You know, often those games are decided by a set, you know, a ball in the box, but the keeper misses because, yeah. you know, let's blame keepers now. Keeper misses because, he, you know, because of the elements, take the ball away. You know, and it just you see scruffy goals and horrible goals and, you know. Well, and sometimes some, you see goalies score from assisted. Yeah, absolutely. Assisted. Yeah, there you go. So, but you just see so many different anomalies in those type of games. That actually, I think most people, if you're a fan or a player or a member of staff, you'd rather, you'd rather some reasonable condition just so the game becomes a fair playing field, if, if you like. Well, maybe that's why, you know, Spain and Italy over the years, because it's the temperature or maybe the climate rather than the temperature. Climate from less variable, you know, maybe less snow, less wind, certainly less rain than we have here in the UK. It, it allows for a different type of game, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, look, you know, we, we've spoke about this many times. That if, I think if you look at the type of player that a lot of those nations would you know let's let's take somewhere like spain for example you know the climate most of the year round is pretty good obviously different parts of spain but you know at least as a player you know as a young player you could you know if you're training in 20 degrees most of the year round you know you can stay out and do technical work in the sun and a lot easier to do that work and to do that work with quality yeah than it is sometimes like you can still do the work, you know, it's no excuse at all. If you want to be a top performer, the top performers would do it regardless, wouldn't they? Because they're so driven. Um, but, you know, if it's absolutely lashing it down and you finish your session, there's not many players thinking, oh, I'll stay out and do an hour of technical work. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just not as conducive to doing it. I think, you know, the more the facilities have changed and the more the clubs have got indoor areas and better facilities, I think there's, we've seen the advent of, you know, more technical academy players coming through and the investment that's been done in it. But but nevertheless, I think that, you know, it's certainly the climate, the chance to train all year round consistently, you know, having a bit of sun on your back when you're training allows you to stay out and do double sessions. It allows you, you know, pre-season is so different. Pre-season, you know, if every week was like pre-season, I think you would you would train and coach and play in a very different way in some ways. Because because of the the opportunity to do so, so it'd be interesting to try it, wouldn't it? To imagine to coach or manage on the continent where the conditions were like that, and just to see how much difference it would it would um, it would make. So yeah, so I'll be putting in for every job. So let's let's put a list of countries together that, yeah. that um, weather dependent jobs, weather dependent <laughs> jobs, yeah, and see if see if we can uh, we see if we can bag one. Okay, well. Like most people, we've talked about the weather. Now, on to the next subject. (laughs) Now, I have to admit the next subject's a little bit close to home because I suppose when I first joined football, I was a blow-in. I was one of those people who was coming from outside of the sport and coming in to mess up the holy grail, which was the football family, with our ideas and innovation from other sports. And recently, we've just seen at Manchester United now, they've, with Ineos coming in and uh, Dave Brailsford becoming part of the, the back room as such at Manchester United, that they're looking at this 
Ineos influence of a multi-sport ownership as opposed to multi-club ownership and looking at what kind of innovation that they can bring to a club like Manchester United. Yeah, well, I think the first thing with that is that you, you know, on those odd day when I'd look out the window and you'd be chucking a rugby ball to players prior to the warm-up was that day when I thought, he's just not letting this go, Dave. He's not letting it go. He's trying to infiltrate the team. And, Never and, um, forget your roots. And all, <laughs> and all the players would be looking and go, what? And you get the odd player, wouldn't you? You think, well, he's obviously gone to private school because he can spin a rugby ball out about 30 metres. It's all, it, it's all a little surreptitious psychological test that, yeah. you know, to find out whose who's background is what. Yeah, you can spin then, a rugby ball properly or kick it properly. And then you get another one who would throw it like he's never held a rugby ball in his life. And that, that probably, um, yeah, most of the forwards usually. So, yeah, hey, I'm look, just levelling the playing field there because they see me with... <laughs> no, to be fair, it's not fair to compare me with most other like conditioning people. Ratting when around. To, when it comes to ball at my feet, I'm actually decent. <laughs> Ratting around, getting I, I out have a body, scrum. I have a body kind of people who can also <laughs> allude to when the ball's at my feet, I'm all right. But <laughs> yeah, yes. that's, another, that's another podcast. Uh, look, I think, I think what you'd say with that is if you take Ineos, for example, and, and, and I've actually watched quite a few of the recent Man United matches with, with um, you know, the likes of Dale Bra- Dave Brailsford peering on from the stands. And, and, and it always looks a little bit strange, doesn't it, to people in football or people have been in football a long time and perhaps protect that identity of, you know, and I've never been one of these, protect the identity of, well, if you haven't played the game, then how do you understand what it's about? Or if you haven't coached the game, how do you understand? To me, high performance is high performance at any level. Obviously, the subject that you're trying to talk about within high performance, you know, relates to what you're trying to do is that specificity or whatever it is, however you even say it. It's one of the hardest words to say that, and it goes specificity. Yeah, that's it. It's really hard. So, so, (laughs) (laughs) but but it's that. But you know, but if you look at high performance, if you take Dave Brailsford for example, why can't he come in and and influence a football environment, a high performance environment, an environment that's not been at his peak for a while, that needs to get back to one of the biggest sporting organisations in the world, you know. If you look at his background in cycling, if you look at the success they've had in cycling, if you look at some of the innovations that they've used, and I'm sure he isn't the only one, it's obviously been well spoke about, but if you look at it and you, you try to compartmentalise it, and what he's, done, what he's done, and I think is very, very clever, and I read a quote the other day from him about, he said, if I look at cycling, to most people he said, I'm watching colour TV, and you're watching black and white. If I look at football, I'm watching black and white, and most people are watching colour TV. So I think he's already quite humbly said, look, I don't know loads about football. I know a little bit, but I don't know loads. But what I do know about is winning and high performance. Yes. And, and, and I think that's the, that's the key, isn't it, you know, from outside. But I think one of the challenges, and, and you know, how did you find it? One of the challenges, I think, is that, accepting that this player can help the organisation. And obviously that's a very different thing to coming in, isn't it? It's how do you gain credibility so that you can affect some of those changes in a different sport? I think in 25 years, uh, probably football has opened its eyes to 
other influences from sports science and performance and now medical and then into coaching and so on. And now all the way up to sporting directors and so on and owners have come from influences or have gained influence from looking at other sports. The cross-fertilization of knowledge is just rampant nowadays. In fact, if you're not cross-fertilization, uh, <laughs> cross-fertilizing in your knowledge, you're probably... Are you on gardening again? Yeah, back the carrot, You had the yeah. carrot method. The carrot method, cross-fertilizing. Cross <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you're not seen to be doing that, you're not being innovative. You're, you're not trying to push the edges of performance. And Dave Brailsford has certainly been around and facilitated some of the highest performing organizations that we've seen in sport over the last decade and, and more, you know, and has had proven success of doing that. So why should it not be that football and football organizations are even more open to looking at that? Probably now players are, are more used to Players have come from abroad. Coaches have come from abroad. Influencers have come from outside sport. So we shouldn't necessarily have to be protective over people coming in from outside. Maybe it's just the media who are looking for a story here to deal with somebody coming from cycling, telling footballers how to play the game. And that's the challenge, isn't it? And I don't think that's ever, you know, someone like Dave Brailsford's remit is to tell players or affect necessarily the football side is it it's it's you know what's the difference between having a, a director of football or a technical director that's an ex-player but doesn't necessarily understand cultures and building cultures and 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 all those type of things but they understand football incredibly well what's the difference between having someone like that who's perhaps not as equipped to do the actual job as opposed to someone who's completely equipped to do the job, but maybe doesn't have the football knowledge. It depends what the role's about, doesn't it? But, Absolutely, yeah. But if you look at, you know, if you look at culture, what does a win... Because I think this is what the remit's about, isn't it? And this is why, obviously, Ineos, I would imagine, would have enlisted Dave Brailsford in their business model at other clubs, you know, in France, at other organisations. Because, quite simply... He knows what winning's about, you know, and, and when you look at the top performers in sport, they all have similar traits, don't they? You know, they know what the levels of work to achieve are about. And I think actually it's a good thing that, you know, if you look at football, we're all, we're all relatively set in our ways. We're all relatively, you know, we work sometimes of how we've seen previous work done or the managers we've worked under, or the coaches we've worked under, or the players we've played with, or whatever that might be. But actually, do we always understand what top, top, top level sporting culture looks like? You know, I mean, their model was quite simple, wasn't it? If you look from afar at Team Sky, was was marginal gains, wasn't it? Was it marginal gains? It's I certainly the headline marginal gains, wasn't it? And it, 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 there was a lot of... A lot of store given to that, but yeah. you only get to marginal gains when you've sorted out the other 99% of the stuff that has to be below that. That's working and working really effectively and efficiently. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, if you can do that in an environment where there's a lot of data, there's a lot of analytics, there's a lot of small details, it's obviously a very different type of sport um, and a different way of preparing that. But of course, you have to understand what it takes to be a footballer from a physical aspect, you know. But what I would say for someone like that who can oversee 
a culture that can oversee the building of a high performance culture. I think, was it Nice that they did it in France? And yes. I think at Nice, the first season, they finished something like eighth or whatever that was. And I think this year, they've been top of the league for quite a while or they're very much in that title race. So they've obviously affected something over there. And of course, what you do is you get good people around you as well. You get good football people, you get tactical knowledge, you get very good technical coaches, you get people in the organisation that know exactly what they're doing in that role, but then you oversee that synergy, don't you? And you oversee some of those processes that... Well, that facilitation is probably what he's there to do, isn't he? He, yeah. he knows what the system needs to look like and knows he needs to get the best people into that, create the right culture around those people working together but also empowering them and facilitating to be able to carry out the work that they need to do. It doesn't happen overnight, you know. It's not going to be that they're necessarily going to win the league next season or even the year after, you know, but it's about putting the building blocks in place for a high-performance organisation that can then persist for years and years to, to go. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's, I think that's a good thing. If I'm... If I'm at a football club and you have, well, we have had the ability to, I mean, I remember sitting down with Dave Brailsford for about an hour uh, when I was at Derby. Um, yeah. you know, we had a mutual, um, a mutual sort of friend, colleague that was chatting to him. He lived locally. He'd been in the building. I remember picking his brain about some things and I'll be honest with you, for an hour, I could have spent 10 hours with him. I could have asked him so many things and for me, that was so interesting because I think you have to have the, you know, we've all been in football or all have our own background in football, whatever that looks like. But I think being able to find different information and different ways of working and, and to actually pair that up with your own knowledge for me is what learning's about, is what high performance is about. It's embracing other ideas and how, I think the biggest thing is, it's always how does that fit into our model and what we're doing and you've seen that you've seen that a lot of clubs haven't you a lot of times where you've maybe brought it might have been a psychologist where you brought a sports psychologist in from outside of football and it's just not quite worked in a team environment but it's maybe worked really well with individuals you've brought someone in who you know who's it's been absolutely brilliant and it's worked seamlessly I think it always comes down to that individual skill and knowledge and how much they want to influence football in things or how much they just stick to what they're good at and don't confess to knowing that. So, I mean, what other, you know, I'm just trying to think of some of the scenarios at other clubs where they brought people in from outside and... Well, you would have had Clive Woodward famously went in to Southampton, obviously yeah. won the World Cup with England in rugby and then years later has gone into Southampton as a essentially director of performance or similar type of role, brought in some of the staff that he had had at England. Um, and with, I think it was Simon Clifford as well, going in on the kind of technical side, they tried to influence things at Southampton. And even to this day, Southampton still have their, their multi-club ownership now, but they're still looking at that innovation from bringing people in from English Institute of Sport or you know, whether they brought in uh, specialists in different areas who could, again, facilitate the organisation, not necessarily the team. They're not trying to come in and pick the team and improve the players directly by coaching them on the pitch, but putting the, the culture around them and the systems in place to 
allow the players and the team to perform. It, it was funny that one, wasn't it? Because that didn't feel like it potentially worked that effectively, did it? But I suppose unless you're in that club and you see the things that people are doing and you look at the things that maybe are still around now that maybe they built up at that time, I think one of the challenges, and this is the biggest challenge, I think, for me, is as soon as... And I'm sure it's happening with Sadeo Brailsford, where as soon as you say he's coming in to do X, there'll be... I mean, look, we're talking about it now, aren't we? But there'll be a number of pundits, media outlets, whatever, that will be ready to challenge that because he's not a football person, because he's not been involved in football. And, you know, I suppose unless they understand exactly what he's there to bring and what his remit is, people are going to judge it from afar as though he's going to be a technical director or yes. as though he's going to be a sporting director. Well, that might be very different to the model that he's coming in to help build, you know. So um be interesting to see how that works. But I think we should be... Uh, my own personal opinion is you can learn from so many of these top-level performers, whether that's a player. You know, if you're a, if you're a player and you look at someone in the NBA that's playing at the top level, the players would happily look at what they do. You know, if they're training at six o'clock in the morning, they would happily mimic some of those, some of those sort of, um, you know, those, those ways of working. But okay, so I need to do more because that's what a top level sporting person Yeah, do. that's their behaviours. I better There's, do that. Exactly. Yeah. So I've got to do that. So it will influence players, but it's maybe the, maybe the sports that they like or maybe they're sports that they're into as young, young athletes. And I think the challenge, of course, is it's embracing the outside influence or that embracing that opportunity to learn. You know, I look at digressing slightly, but I watch a lot of the fight games, so like boxing, UFC, whatever. And if you look at some of the way they train, so one of the camps, I think it's um, yeah. a coach called John Danaher, I'm digressing slightly, but they train every day. They train literally 365 days of the year. Yeah. And if you look at that as commitment to high-level performance and then you strip that back and look at football and you think of, you know, it's a very different way of working, but you can learn little things off it. You know, maybe we do need to work harder. Maybe the players need to have less days off. Maybe, you know, that is the way forward nowadays. Um, <laughs> it, it brings me actually to a an interesting memory of when I was at London Irish and interestingly, Sir Clive Woodward, before he was a sir, was making his way up in, in rugby coaching. So he had left Henley, come to London Irish. Rugby had only just gone pro or was going pro. And at that stage, he brought in an athlete to kind of help the players understand what it was like as a full-time athlete. Um, but he brought in Sir Steve Redgrave so essentially, this well, not was, just any athlete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> just in, an athlete. in came Sir Steve with his um, with his wooden box to hand round for everyone could pick out all the medals that he had, including the bronze. That not many people realise he actually has a bronze medal from the Olympics as well. But here were, I think, at that stage, only four Olympic golds. But he's handing them round, and this, you know, ironically for. Clive to be seen going into Southampton as a rugby person going into Southampton. Here was him bringing in a different sport athlete to influence rugby, which was his sport. Um, and one of the players is asking Steve Redgrave about, you know, what his, what his schedule was across the week. And he says, well, I, I train twice a day. The player says, uh, how many days a week do you do that? And he says, 
well, six, and then I have a half day on a Sunday. So the player's like, what, you have a half a day off a week? He went, yes. I said, well, when do you have a full day off? And he says, I take a full day off once every six months. Wow. And then, so the player, you know, he was a front row player, took a little bit of time. He then had worked out, maybe a half an hour later, that that meant seven days off in an Olympic cycle of four years. And so he's, he's asked Steve Redgrave, why do you train so often? And he says, because to win those medals, I have to commit to this life of being a full-time athlete. And I thought that was brilliant by Clive in some ways at the very outset of Rugby Gone Pro to nail down to what were essentially the first cohort of professional players to say, this is the commitment to your sport to be able to win is you commit to the lifestyle of a professional athlete. So now when I see someone like Dave Railford coming in, you're thinking, well, he's been successful around cycling. He's part of the Ineos group, which has been super successful in other sports, sailing included. They're now going into, into football. Why can't they combine all this com collective knowledge of winning and help Manchester United win? And that's the thing, isn't it? It's so interesting when you look at it. And, and provided you'll embrace that. I mean, some, you know, it's like anything, isn't it? If you walked into a, you know, let's say you're addressing the team and there's, let's just take 20 players. I'm sure that 10 players are going to be interested in it and 10 players are probably going to have less interest in it and not see that as applicable to them. I think if you know what winning, what, what does winning look like in different cultures and different environments? Pretty similar, isn't it? it? It's like, you know, we're talking about a huge commitment to train and build that base for potential performance. Obviously, football's different in as much as, you know, let's say Rowan, you might be performing once every six months in a race or whatever that is. In football, you're performing twice a week, you know, so the training has to be, has to reflect that, doesn't it? But, you know, there'll be an incredible forensic, detail on numbers and data and what the training looks like and what performance looks like. There'll be an incredible detailed view of the surroundings of a player and how can we maximise that diet, um, you know, rest, sleep, you know, all of these factors that filter into top performance and a lot of these other sports, so, you know, whichever way you look at it, but not some, not so much nowadays, but we are, we are still fairly traditional, aren't we, in this country of, of how we would treat players and what we would do. Of course, that's moved on differently. People spoke about Wenger coming in originally and changing the diet of players and changing the approach. And obviously that's moved on 20-fold since those days. Absolutely, yeah. But it still wouldn't, I, d I still don't think at times some of the leagues would be as professionally focused as some of these other sports and and you know we can definitely learn from them i think the big challenge is can someone like i mean it's going to be really interesting isn't it can someone like sir david brailsford come in and have an impact on a massive global organization like man united you know and this is going to be such an interesting period how would you quantify that one person isn't going to do that on their own but it'd be really, it'd be really interesting to see some of the things or hear about some of the things that that um, he may be able to change and may be able to affect some elements of the performance. I mean, you mentioned Man United being a global organisation. It, it makes me think of 
some of the organizations that we've also seen in sport, which have been multi-sport organizations. And what they've done is combined knowledge from multiple practitioners and coaches across all of the sports within their setup. So let's take someone like Barcelona or Madison Square Garden Group, which has got ice hockey and basketball and baseball. And what they're combining is the combined power of all of the practitioners and all of the coaches who can share that knowledge. Um, so in a different way, they're essentially combining multi-sport knowledge. Man United are now doing the same thing. The, the proof of the pudding is not necessarily going to be whether they win now, it's whether they start winning consistently in the future. Yeah, and you remember reading things about the Milan, AC, the Milan lab. Yeah, where they had a massive look as AC Milan's a massive sporting club, isn't it? It's not they, just it's not just football. football, like you say. So they would they would use the best practitioners, the best sports scientists, the best doctors, because performance is performance, isn't it? It's, it's yes, it's a different sport, but you still you've got a person who is trying to perform physically to the best of their ability, and there's so many things that go into that: the cognitive side of it, the the physical side, the the the, the tactical, technical, all of those things. But there's similar elements within that and there's similar ways to innovate. I, I, I look at it and I look and think, if you've got that knowledge base that you can share, why wouldn't you use it? I mean, we've been at clubs before where you've had a link to a European club that no one ever really uses. And you think, why not tap into that? Why not do some sharing of information with coaches yeah. and medical teams and you know, not necessarily players, but just from a cultural perspective. I've met owners of clubs who have had American football teams or links to American sport. And you think, well, can I go and get into an NFL team for two days? Because again, there's a wealth of knowledge that you can tap into. But you might just take one or two things from it. You might take nothing from it. You might go there and do yeah. a study visit and you might go, actually, there wasn't really anything that I think I could bring back. Well, there might be loads that you could bring back. But for me, and I, and I always, you know, and I think you're very similar, aren't you? It's about learning as much as it's about enjoying the job. It's about feeling like you can progress and often tapping into other sports and other individual athletes and ways people work. It, for me, is, is, is fascinating. So, you know, I'm certainly going to keep a, a close eye on... Um, on Dave Brailsford in the stand at Old Trafford, watching from afar and just, wonder, <laughs> and just wondering brief. exactly what he, what he has been able to change or what he has been able to affect. Well, it's certainly going to be you know, part of this, as he's already said, is he's got to learn about football. So one thing we know about fantastic leaders is they can learn really quickly, adapt really, really fast. I suppose if, if it was a case of, if you had the choice of pivoting, and trying a different sport is is the one that would like jump out that you'd like oh fancy having a go at coaching that sport not necessarily coaching it from the technical side you know maybe the question here is 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 coaching about knowing the detail of the sport or in certain cases is it about motivating the athlete or the team or both of those in order to gain success God, it's really could, difficult, could you pivot? Actually, actually, it's quite funny because as soon as you say that, I, I'm thinking about people coming into football and high performance and, and, you know, why shouldn't they be able to do it? But actually the thought of, the thought of going into another sport 
and actually trying to affect performance and culture at a different sport, it's quite a straight, it's quite an uncomfortable feeling because straight away you're thinking, well, I don't really know that. I don't really know. Let's take mixed martial arts, for example, because again, you know, that's something that I love watching. I certainly wouldn't want to do it, that's for sure. <laughs> but I love watching it. But of course, it's so, when you watch it, it's so technical. You know, it's so technical a sport. Like, let's take the jujitsu element of it. It's so technical, but it's so difficult to imagine. How do you talk to someone that's been doing that for 30 years? And how can you help? Yeah. So the first thing you do is you don't, you don't try to be technical because you're never going to be. So you have to talk about how do you train? What are some of, the, some of the ways that you work? You know, what about the nutrition side of it? What about the rest side of it? What about recovery? What analysis. about the analysis? Yeah. So, so I suppose, and that's exactly what these people going into football will do, won't they? Because you know what it's like. It will be interesting to see how long before a Roy Keane or a Gary Neville or whoever, I don't think they would criticise it because I think they'd also be open-minded, but would be critical of that type of person coming into a, a club that they would know so well and they would have seen, been ran by one person, Sir Alex Ferguson, for so many years. So it'd be interesting to see their thought on it. But, but yeah, I think, it's all, I think you're always going to feel like an outsider somewhere like that. So, so um, I suppose the so, people yeah. around you who are going to ultimately help you succeed or not, whether it's the head coach, whether it's the players, of course, they're the ones who essentially are in the firing line. Whether you choose the right players or the right coach, maybe you have an influence on those, maybe you don't. But essentially, if the organisation is set up in the right way, it gives you a better chance of achieving success. Well, you'd have to manage. You'd have to manage a process, wouldn't you? I think it'd be really important to, to understand, you know, who do you need to work within some of the things that you don't know about? So some of the gaps that you have within your skill set and what are your skills? So again, you know, this is back to Brailsford talking about, you know, he doesn't understand football. So straight away, that's out there. I'm not here to tell people how to do that, but I'm here to do all the other things around it. So... I mean, that's what you'd have to do, wouldn't you? You'd have, to, you'd have to focus and concentrate on getting good people who understood that sport, managing around it and, and setting up the process around it. Um, but it would certainly be very, very interesting to try because it would be... I think there's always a difficult acceptance for someone who hasn't played that sport or been in the sport to suddenly come into it. Yeah. I think there's just... A, something isn't there there's just a bit of a block around but people perhaps just don't see that in the same way so well, yeah it's gonna I, be... I saw it in the early days of my career where it was did you do this with your rugby players did you do this with really? your rowers right. you know because we were essentially the first people trying to influence yeah. sports science on yeah. players and it was like they never really did weightlift, you know weightlifting they never did S&C as we call it now but they, yeah. they never went in the gym you know, gym was something you started doing about eight weeks before you went to your summer holidays. Whereas now it's like a fundamental part of the week, isn't it? So I suppose that's a different challenge, isn't it? When, you, when you're affecting performance, it's still performance, isn't it? So I suppose if you're in that, I suppose players, and I certainly did it, you were, most of the early pioneers like yourself of that sort of like a fitness coach, sports scientist, which he was called back in the day, most of them didn't come from football. No. And most of them came from outside. You know, I've, I've worked with ones that were army, know, athletics coaches, athletics, an ex-army yeah. PT yeah. or ex-policeman or what. 
that were really into fitness and really sort of transitioned from their career into fitness yeah. and then started coming into, into football. And then, of course, players leaving the game see that as an opportunity. So now more players go, actually, I'm quite interested in the fitness side of it. So would start to prepare their careers before they finish around that. But early on, that was... It was all about, it was all other sports, wasn't it? It was all people from other sports. Yeah, yeah. And so, so that would have been a challenge, but still, that was the norm. So I think going into a big organisation that's already set in stone how they tend to do things from a different sport or different sports is a challenge. And, and you know, like I said before, I think it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out. And, and Yeah, it's got to be fascinating, them, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We hope you enjoyed the chat about the weather. There's certainly no getting away from it. Wind, rain and snow perhaps contribute most to disrupting training sessions and matches, and they certainly reduce the quality of both. And while pitches suffer, so do the options for lower league clubs to even do any formal training. It's a real challenge to keep players fit and prepared. And modern sport is very focused on seeking performance advantages from any source, and football is no different. With Ineos and Sir Dave Brailsford joining Manchester United, will we see them benefit from one of the world's leading multi-sport organisations? Join us soon for the next episode of Breaking Lines. <laughs>